Good morning. Happy New Year. My name is David Kakish. I'm one of the elders at Cornerstone Church, and I want to start off my first sermon in 2022 in maybe the weirdest way possible, okay? I want to begin by telling you the two most common, the two largest objections I hear against faith in God. Uh, it's a totally normal way to start a sermon, right? And here they are. If God is really loving, why does he send any to hell? Why does he judge the world? And the second is, uh, if God is really good, why does he allow evil in this world? You heard these questions, these objections before? Uh, yeah, they're not new. Epicurus was asking them similar ones 300 years before Jesus was born. And on their own, they're fair questions. On their own, they're fair questions. But when put together, they counteract and undermine each other. And I'll show you what I mean. The first question assumes that people are inherently good. We're, we're good, and we're all getting along, and everything's going great. And if people are inherently good, then God is inherently bad and evil for judging a good world. The second question acknowledges that this world is uh, inherently broken, and then paints God as indifferent or powerless to do anything about it. Do you, you see that? So which is it? Are we good and God is bad for punishing, or are we broken and God is bad for not punishing all? You can't really have both. If humanity was truly good, then we wouldn't need God's judgment. God wouldn't need to judge, but by acknowledging the injustice of unchecked sin and suffering and evil in the second question, they show that they not only understand, but even desire a just God to meet and rectify and remedy every violation of his law. Um, the two questions counteract and undermine each other. That's how it kind of works. Do you see that? And yet the questions often come together as a package deal, often by the same person. And how is that possible? Well, in my experience, um, I found that the first question is typically where people begin with their doubt. That's usually where it starts, and then life gets difficult and catches up, and eventually they grow into the second question. It, it starts in Pleasantville, in a nice suburb, on a sweet, uh, nicely manicured cul-de-sac, and a 2,500-square-foot warm house, and you think to yourself, my Muslim neighbor seems really nice. Uh, God's going to punish him with eternal torment because he's not praying to the right God? That, that's not right. I don't like that. God sounds mean. And I'm not picking on Muslims here. We could sub in anything you want. Uh, but that's what we <coughs> might think. And it's funny, my mom wouldn't have thought that. Her dad was a pastor. Their church was burned down. She watched her uncle get murdered in front of her. Uh, her older brother was kidnapped, and they tried to bury him alive. She, she wouldn't have those same thoughts, but these starts kind of start, these thoughts start on a nice little suburb in Pleasantville, but here's the thing. It's usually only those who haven't really suffered who wonder how a loving God could punish people. Because when you've experienced in, egregious injustice, when you have deep loss in your life, Everything in you demands that wrong to be addressed. Everything in you wants that injustice to be remedied. And sadly, even in its best form, which it rarely is, earthly justice never feels like enough. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, the premise of our entire legal system is usually summed up in one sentence on a cop show. You do the crime, you do the time. If someone commits a terrible crime against you, they go to jail. 
You are harmed, they are punished. That's the premise of most earthly justice. If you burn down my house with my family in it, you will spend the next 20 to life in prison. But that won't comfort my grief. It won't feel like enough. And the reason why earthly justice doesn't satisfy it is because it can only punish the wrongdoer. It cannot heal and comfort the victim. Um, Add to that. Most times, the wrongdoer won't even have to serve their full punishment. I looked this up. I assumed it, but I looked it up. Uh, The Bureau of Justice Statistics. 75% of violent offenders serve less than three years of their sentence before being released from prison. 75%. And even then, with their release, um, it's not predicated on a heart change, right? Uh, Because it's predicated on good behavior during your sentence and saying the right things that you're hearing. But only God can see what's happening in the heart. Only God can weigh actions and see whether or not it's changed. Your release from prison is not predicated on a change of heart because laws are meant to punish, not transform. And I, I won't get into it, but a large percentage of violent criminals are repeat offenders. The statistics are gruesome, and it is. It's a broken way to do it. The, the world understands that there's a problem here. I, I read an article in the Seattle Times back in July, and the title of the article says, Why Can't Justice Punish and Heal at the Same Time? Even in its best forms, human justice rarely heals the offender, and it never comforts the victim. And it's here, it's usually here, after someone experiences uh, this sad reality, whether they experience it personally or experience it through a loved one, um, that they grow into the second question. The second question, uh, because when you realize that we're not inherently good and human justice doesn't satisfy, in that moment, the world feels off kilter. It feels unsafe, it feels unjust, it feels systemically broken. Has anyone experienced that, can say amen to that? Uh, And that's where the second question sneaks in underneath the first. If God was really good, why would he allow it to happen? Uh, Why would he allow evil to flourish? And that actually is a really fair question. And oftentimes people think that it undercuts the message of the Bible, but that's only because they've not actually read the Bible. Read it a little closer and you'll see Habakkuk, Job, Jonah, Jeremiah, so many other J names, so many other prophets and authors of scripture ask God that very question. And by and large, they all hear the same answer. You know what it is? You won't understand. You're just going to have to trust me. And in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Keller, Tim Keller, offers an answer to those who actually want to hear it. Actually, they're open to hearing an answer to their question. And he, he writes this. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing it. And here's what happens if you don't. If you don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, he says about himself, I'll take up the sword and I'll be sucked into an endless vortex of retaliation. God is big enough that we can't understand him in the good and bad. And if you don't accept that, it comes to you. Every living person, whether uh, unrighteous or redeemed, has been, is, or will be affected by the brokenness of this world. It is just a fact. And yet while the redeemed and the unrighteous may experience the same kind of loss, the same kind of brokenness, they may experience the same thing, they'll likely experience it differently. And here's why. Keller's pointing out, you really have two options. 
You either trust in God's character, you trust in God's wisdom, you trust in God's mercy and his justice, even though on this side of eternity, you may never understand it fully. So you either trust God or you become the arbiter of what is right and wrong. You become the decider of what is just and unjust. You become the sole person who can see everything that's broken and know exactly how to fix it. And in so doing, you seek to put yourself in the place of the Most High God. And and here's how it plays up. Ironically, with the unrighteous, even though they once judged God as unloving for wanting to punish evil, after experiencing it themselves and feeling not satisfied by human justice, they seek to become the judge, jury, and executioner themselves. God is unloving for wanting to punish evil, but somehow you're in a better position to do it. Like They forfeit the power and peace that comes with cosmic closure, accepting that God will perfectly tie up every loose end. God will right every wrong, and God will judge every evil. They forfeit that, and as a result, they're tormented and, and torn up and ultimately destroyed by trying to do what only God can. Do you know what that is? Balancing mercy and justice. Loving sinners and wrathing against sin. Uh, We can't do that. It will destroy us. That's what happens with the unrighteous. But for the redeemed, even when suffering and evil find them, they find God's comfort instead. And it, it almost doesn't make sense, right? Because it just shouldn't be. But as bad as it gets, God gets bigger. And God gets better because it's often in pain and suffering that we see and hear God most clearly. There's, what's the line? Uh, we don't realize that God is all we need oftentimes until God is all we have. There's nothing left to say. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can fix it. And that should be demoralizing. But then we see God clearer, bigger, more powerful, more beautiful. And he's all we have and we love it. It's, it's beautiful. And that's when Keller concludes with this. Only if I'm sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly. Do I have the power to refrain? Refrain from what? He's about anger and self-righteousness and retaliation and all the rest. Only if I can trust God. And, and how do we get to that place? We look to the cross. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment on himself. Now you have to be thinking, this is a really weird way to start a sermon on New Year's. Why is he getting into the problem of evil? And what the fire does this have to do with Hannah? That would be a really fair question. And believe it or not, it actually has a lot to do with Hannah. It does. Uh, We might expect a really good answer to the problem of evil from a top-notch theologian like Tim Keller. You might even expect a decent answer on the problem of evil from a subpar pastor like myself. You might. But I don't think any of us would expect to find a robustly biblical answer to the problem of evil from a stay-at-home mom that lived 3,000 years ago named Hannah. But that's exactly what she gives us in this prayer of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and listen, I realize we've spent more time on Hannah than most pastors would if they were preaching through 1 Samuel. I'm weird, and you've accepted that, and that's why I'm still here. But I do have some decent reasons for doing it, and I'll give you two. Number one, because like I've said before, I think Hannah is the most overlooked saint in the entire Old Testament. I think she is, and I think that's just wrong. Uh, and the second is this, why we spent so much time on Hannah. Because in the modern era, Protestants especially Protestants like us, have really struggled to show women the biblical dignity of being portrayed and seen as equal image bearers of God 
and equal exemplars, equal examples of what faithfulness to God looks like. Protestants, especially in the modern era, have struggled with that. And if you don't believe me, it's why we're happy to let our kids sing about Father Abraham and his many sons, but Mother Mary, whew, hold on and, and make sure, and we'll leave it to Paul McCartney to sing about Mother Mary. We'll sing about Father Abraham. And I get why, and there are tons of reasons and all the rest, but I would be the first to point out that the Bible has clear instructions that men and women have different roles to play in God's kingdom. They do. There is a distinction between how God is calling us to operate in his kingdom. There is. But distinction is not division. Distinction is side by side. It's not over under. Men and women in scripture and today are side by side, arm in arm, under God's authority. You know how I know that? There's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 28. So there are distinctions in roles, but there's no room for division. There's no room for attitudes of superiority or inferiority. We all stand on this level ground as sinners at the foot of the cross. Side by side, we enter in by faith through the same door, Jesus. And we all live together under his authority honoring him as king. Same passengers, equal image bearers, equal examples of faithfulness, though in different ways, which is cool. And I hope that in spending this much time on Hannah, I faithfully showed us and shepherded us through that truth because I think we need to give Hannah the honor that she deserves. That's enough preamble. This is the second installment of a sermon I started last week on worship. And uh, last week, we looked at weaning worship and sacrificial worship. And if you weren't here, you're like, what is weaning worship? Listen to the recording if you want. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with a flyover of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And, and it's going to be on kingdom worship, kingdom worship. So if you have your Bibles, open up. First Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, here's 1 through 5. Hannah sacrificially worshiped. She brought her only son to make good on her vow. God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him to you all the days of his life. She did that. They gave an exorbitant three times the sacrifice that would have been required of them. Um, and then it erupts into this kingdom worship where she praises God not only as the Lord of her life, but the Lord over all life. Her praises get bigger and they multiply and it starts like this in verse one. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I told you last week that love adds by subtracting. And Hannah had just given up her only son, the very son her heart longed for. And yet, listen to how she worships after that. She begins by saying that her heart is overflowing with joy because God has exalted her horn. God has lifted up her head. She felt down and out. She was depressed. She had no hope. She couldn't eat. She couldn't drink. God saw her. God heard her. God honored her. God gave her her answer to her prayer, and God has filled her up. She is overflowing. She is exploding in joy, and she's thankful that only God can do that. Her situation has completely reversed. And then she says, uh, my mouth derides my enemies, which sounds like she's gloating over her enemies, right? Like, ha ha, take that, dummies. Uh, but that's not what's really happening here. Um, Hannah has experienced unbelievable hardship. She was depressed. She was tormented. She's been oppressed, and not just from Peninnah. Remember the time frame, the book of Judges. And during the book of Judges, when Israel is by and large being evil, 
God wants to bring them back to him, and he does that by allowing natural disasters and famine and pagan, evil, immoral surrounding nations to take over Israel and to perpetuate injustice and oppression. And those pagan nations saw that as the victory of their gods over the God of Israel. And you better believe they taunted and tormented Israel. So when she says, my mouth derides my enemies, her enemies are any and all who would attack her trust in God. Anyone who would say to her, if God was so loving, why would he punish you guys? If God was really good, why would he allow this to happen in your life? Maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe he's not as good or as powerful as you think he is. That's her enemies. Anyone who would attack her trust in God and her mouth derides them, which is a word that we don't often use, but in Hebrew it means a widening and enlarging her mouth. So that helps you understand it, of course. She's widening and enlarging her mouth over her enemies. She is boasting, but look at what she's boasting in. She is boasting in God's salvation, in God's kindness, in God's help, in God's strength and his power. That's what her boast is in. She's widening and enlarging her mouth because she wants every person who contends with and doubts God to hear her answer to the problem of evil. And in verse 2, she shouts in joyful boasting from the top of her lungs and says this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock. There is no safe place. There is no fortress. There is no protection like there is in our God. And in verse 1, Hannah's prayer is, is deeply personal, right? She's worshiping God for who he is and what he's done in her life. Count it again. I think I did. I think there are five mys. Uh, my heart, my strength, my God, my mouth, my enemies. Verse one, her prayer, her praise is deeply personal for what God has been to her, for her, in her life. Verses two and following, her worship transcends the mise. It moves beyond personal concerns and experiences, and she glorifies God as the Lord over all human affairs, over every form and facet of our lives. And one commentator puts it like this, what the Holy Lord has done for Hannah is a picture of and a pointer to what he will do for his people. I told you uh, that what's happening in Elkanah's family with Hannah and Peninnah is just a microcosm of what's happening in Israel by and large, and what God has done for Hannah he can and will do for all his people if they will bring the same heart as Hannah's into the situation. She's just uh, a billboard pointing to something that could happen on a larger scale. And then verse 3, Hannah gets uh, salty. I like it. She tells those who speak arrogantly, whether they're claiming to understand truth without God, whether they're claiming to take credit for their lives and make God small, whether they're speaking of God irreverently, whatever it is, she straight up says, shut up. Shut your mouths. Why? Because the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. And this verse is a warning to the unrighteous and an encouragement to the redeemed. It's a warning to the unrighteous, because they may be squawking, and they may be saying things, even right things, and all the rest. And she's saying, God knows everything, including the secret motives and hidden desires of your heart. And when he judges... He will judge on those terms, not just what you said and did in public when people are looking. He cuts through bone and marrow and sees. He weighs actions and all the rest. God has that kind of knowledge. And I would maybe sober up. But for the redeemed, it's an encouragement. Because 
Where am I at? Yeah, here I am. It's really the fact that there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside him. He is our rock. And if he has all knowledge, and it's him who weighs out people's actions, then what he says matters most. It doesn't matter what we think or what others around us think. And the reason that's important in this day and age is it doesn't matter if we're on the wrong side of history. What matters is, are we on the right side of Scripture? And those two may not always be on the same page, but it doesn't matter because the Lord has all knowledge. And he's the one who will weigh out the secret actions of the heart. And in verses 4 through 8, Hannah highlights the fact that God is sovereign over all, and ultimately it's his will and his justice that will win out. I told you this before, this song, this prayer, really depicts the major theme in the entire book of 1 Samuel, and it's one of reversal. God can reverse anything. He can. Uh, so with God, the strong and weak, the full and hungry, the fertile and barren, the dead and alive, the poor and the rich, the high and the low, can all have their situations reversed one way or another. And it turns on one factor, Faith in God or contention in God. And I may not know what you're presently going through. I don't. But thank God I know who is over all of your present circumstances. And whatever it is, he can reverse it. Um, Eugene Peterson, you know I like him, says uh, that Hannah's words remind us of this, that nothing has to remain the way it is. In a world in which God is sovereign, nothing circumstantial is set in concrete. I love that sentence. Nothing circumstantial is set in concrete. No part of our human existence takes place apart from God. God's presence and his actions embrace the polarities of life and death, success and failure. If you can grasp that, there is gold there. Your circumstances depend on God. So where are you looking for help? It's an important question. Uh, we'll keep moving. In verse 9, Hannah proclaims that God is for those who chase after him, but whoever's not for him, is against him. And whoever contends against God, um, they'll never win. And then she explains why. She says in verse 9, it's not by strength that one prevails. Uh, you're not in charge. You can't change it. You can't fix it. It's not by strength that one prevails. And when you combine that with verse 7, where she says the Lord brings high and the Lord exalts and the Lord brings low, when you combine those two things, it's not by strength that we prevail because it's the Lord who exalts and it's the Lord who brings low. That's when you can really understand the story of Saul and David. Let me show you what I mean. When you meet Saul in 1 Samuel 9-2, we're told that he's a head taller than all of the rest of Israel. <laughs> he is high. He is the typical picture of what we think power and might look like in this world. He's handsome, impressive, strong, taller than the rest. He's the biggest and baddest and all the rest. But Saul tries to prevail in his own strength and in his own wisdom without God, often against God. So what does God do? God brings him low. At the end of 1 Samuel, it says that fall, uh, Saul is fallen on Mount Geboa. He was a head taller than everyone else. At the end of the book, he's fallen. God brings him low. And when David mourns over Saul, you know what he says? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The strong have been brought low and made weak. That's the book of 1 Samuel. Whereas when we meet David, the king after God's own heart, the first time we meet him, he's not a head taller than the rest of Israel. He's described as the youngest or the smallest of all of Jesse's children. And yet God exalts him and lifts him up over who? Over Goliath, a giant, over Saul, over his brothers, over his enemies and all the rest. Why? Because David is amazing? And Saul was bad? No. Because like Hannah, David was willing to trust God in spite of his circumstances. 
Like Hannah, David was willing to wait on God's timing and God's deliverance rather than prevailing in his own strength, his own schemes, and his own wisdoms. And when God came through, like Hannah, David was willing to give God all the glory and all the praise and all the honor for doing just that. Which brings us to the final line of Hannah's prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And while that might make uh, the rich and safe feel uncomfortable, oh, that sounds mean and all the rest, throughout the history of this word, it's made the poor and oppressed, the down and out, rejoice that there will be justice. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. To paraphrase, Hannah is saying, God's enemies don't stand a chance. His will for this world and his people, it will prevail. And this world may be filled with all manners of sin, suffering, and evil, but God will bring justice to the ends of the earth. And when God judges, he not only punishes the wrong, he writes it. He writes it. How? How will he reverse the story of the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hungry, those who are persecuted for his name's sake? How? How will God answer the problem of evil? Hannah tells us. He will give strength and exalt his anointed. I called this last point kingdom worship because this song isn't about Hannah. It's not about Samuel. It's not about answered prayers. It is about the Lord. The Lord is the central figure of this story in every story. She mentions him nine times in these 10 verses. And this story about a grieving woman asking God for a son, God giving her a son, her dedicating that son, results in this beautiful song of praise about God's sovereignty, his justice, his kindness, and his goodness. And it ends with a longing for God's anointed, is what she says. <laughs> if you've grown up in the church, you might be familiar with that word anointed. Hannah probably was too. I mean, it appears dozens of times in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And to anoint someone means that you are marking them and they're being given a position by God. So Aaron is anointed with oil as the priest over Israel. Uh, soon, Saul will be anointed with oil as king, being marked out and given the position to be the king over Israel. After him, David will be anointed and made the king over Israel. They're being marked out and given a position by God. But what makes it unique here, she's praying for this king, God's anointed. And when she's praying it, there is no king. This is looking forward to an answer. You want to hear something even crazier than that? This is the first time the title, God's anointed, ever appears in the Bible. It appears a lot after this, but this is the first time. And here's why that's a big deal. In Hebrew, the word anointed is the same word for another word we're familiar with, uh, Messiah. It's, it's the same word. Messiah, Savior, King. And does anyone know what the word Messiah in Hebrew is in Greek? Christos. In English, we say Christ. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Hannah's praise went from thanking God for his kindness to her and giving her a son, and it erupted. And it transcended her personal things and it went into longing for God's Messiah, the Christ, to rule over the whole world in justice. Small prayer request, small answer, huge praise, huge longing for cosmic reconciliation under the rule of the Lord. 
Uh, did Hannah know that she was longing for Jesus? Fair question. <clears throat> I'm not sure she fully understood that. I don't know what she knew. But what I do know is that this was a spirit birth song. This was a spirit birth prayer. Do you know how I am certain that's true? Because like you heard in our background scripture, a thousand years later, another young woman named Mary takes that same song, starts it the same way, hits the same major theme. She takes this same song and does a cover version because it's not about a long coming God's anointed king who would rule in justice. Mary takes that same song and sings it about the baby in her womb who will save the world. And that is beautiful. And one commentator says it like this, Hannah's presented as praying more than she knows. Her prayer is anticipating King Messiah Saul, which is anticipating King Messiah David, but with the story laid out in front of us, with we who know the whole story, what she was really praying for, anticipating is King Messiah Jesus. So I'm going to walk you through all of this again. In chapter 1, Hannah prays about an immediate circumstance, an immediate problem. She's barren. She wants a kid. She asks God for that. God gives her that. Chapter 1, small prayer, immediate prayer, immediate answer. In chapter 2, her worship begins with God's faithfulness to her personally. And then he just takes off like a rocket ship. It transcends her personal experiences and concerns into the realm of the kingdom of God worship. Right? She praises God for his faithfulness to her. She opens her mouth wide because she wants God's enemies to hear about his goodness. She warns them, don't rival him. It won't work out. She invites them to submit to God's authority. She's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and she wants the whole world to hear about it. And she praises God for her faithfulness to her. And then <coughs> she just goes on this intercession, long, nonstop train to just intercede on behalf of the littler ones. It's, it's beautiful, right? She asks God to do what he did in her life and in her heart. He wants him to do that in the whole world. She, she prays that God will bring down the oppressor and lift up the oppressed. She prays that God will bankrupt the greedy and feed the hungry. I love verse 5 because that's the only thing she has in common with these things she's praying for. She starts praying for the barren women. Hannah was barren. She was depressed. God gave her joy and opened up her womb. So she prays on behalf of all of God's people who are struggling with infertility. God, give them seven sons. Let them taste and see your goodness. Do it in their lives. It's beautiful. And then from there, she just keeps going and going, and you can't stop her. She's praying through every form of suffering and every form of injustice that she can think of. And she's looking to God alone as the hope and the answer to remedy all the world's problems. And then she ends her prayer by looking to God's Messiah, his anointed one, which we know is Jesus Christ, to be the answer to the problem of evil. The ultimate answer. And as I reflected on Hannah's kingdom worship this week, I asked myself these questions, and we're ending on this. These are the questions I asked myself. Does my worship, does my prayer, does my praise, do my request, does my reading of scripture, does my trust in God, does my faith ever orbit outside of my personal issues? Does God's faithfulness in my life spur me to celebrate and intercede on behalf of others? Can I mourn with those who mourn? Can I actually rejoice with those who rejoice, not going, oh, I want that, and why don't I have that? Well, all the rest. Does my heart long for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? And finally, when I am overwhelmed by the trouble and trajectory of our world today, do I really and truly believe that Jesus is the answer? Or have I believed the lie that God's people can prevail by their own strength?
by other answers, by other alternatives. Um, and I, I wrote those down, and I answered those questions honestly before God, and it wasn't pretty. Um, but I'm going to leave them with you to do this this week if you want to or not. Uh, and I'm going to close in prayer. We'll sing one more song. We'll be dismissed.